We are in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, and I, I don't I don't know what to say. Um, that's not good. I'm the preacher. Um, man, I, I enjoyed that time of worship this morning. I, I know it was I know it was a bit softer, and um, but did you think about those words as you sang them? God, that you would give us clean hands. pure hearts, that we wouldn't lift our souls to another. I don't know about you, but in a day's time, there are times that I say or do or think things that don't please God. I know that's not you. That's probably just your pastor. But And then in a week's time, there's certainly moments of frustration or doubt or confusion or anxiety. And I just, I just want to remind you this morning that we're not Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. And the key to living in his power and to living for him is, is to be honest with yourself and to be honest with others. Um, I had a conversation this week where somebody said, I, I'm just tired of faking it. And I said, well, don't fake it anymore. Just own it. You're a train wreck and that's okay. That's, that's step one to, to God meeting you where you are and dusting you off and getting you back in the game. So stop faking it and start trusting God. You are welcome here at North Roanoke Baptist Church, wherever you are in the stages and the courses of life. We believe that God himself wants to meet you where you are and change you and make you more and more like Jesus. And you can't do that by... Leaving, you, you can't do that by not coming, right? The reason we hear a gospel sermon week in and week out is not because I want a place to speak. It's not. It's because God continues to do the supernatural work of making you more like Jesus through the proclamation of the word and the power of the spirit of God. The spirit does something in you as we hear the gospel week in and week out. So my prayer is wherever you are today, that you would be encouraged, that you would be reminded that Jesus keeps his promises. And because Jesus keeps his promises, even when we fail to, that we have a sure hope. So hear now the word of God, Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. As he was going out of the temple, and that, that, that he is Jesus... As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginnings of birth pains. But be on your guard. 
For they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. What a promise. Would you pray with me? God, help us to endure to the end. Spirit of God, meet us today where we are and break through the anxieties and the distractions of life and cause us to hear an encouraging word from you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 13 is a difficult chapter to preach. And the reason it is difficult is because it has been interpreted in a variety of ways by a variety of good and godly people who disagree. And so I'm going to do my best uh, to explain at least the first 13 verses of this chapter in the way that I believe uh, that is consistent with what God is saying. But again, if you find that you disagree with me on exactly what's going on in terms of the end times and what's going on in this text, that's okay. What we must affirm as a church is that Jesus is coming back and he's coming personally and visibly and gloriously. And he's coming to, to vindicate those who have faith in him and to dwell with them and to lead them forevermore. If we all agree on that and we disagree on some of the details, we'll be okay. Got it? All right. So the latter portions of chapter 13 are clearly about Jesus' personal, visible, and glorious return at the end of the age. But chapter 13 begins with a question and Jesus' answer about the coming destruction of the temple that they are then seeing. Not some future temple, that temple. They, they look around at those stones, which is amazing, right? Because Jesus has been in the temple. He's been questioned by the temple authorities. He has said judgment is coming on the temple when he overturns the money changers tables and he walks out of the temple, the place where the person they've been following for three years has just been mercilessly questioned and questioned and questioned. They walk out of the temple and his disciples go, isn't the temple amazing? Can you imagine if you were Jesus? I mean, he kept his cool. He just says, not one stone will be left upon another. You see, in the disciples' way of thinking, the temple was virtually indestructible. It occupied a fourth of the city of Jerusalem. So if the temple was going to be destroyed, that must mean that the end of the world was going to be right then. That it was gonna, that Jesus was going to return if the temple was going to be overturned. But Jesus shows that the destruction of the temple and his physical return are actually separate events. Nevertheless... The instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples while they await their vindication in the toppling of the temple, his instructions are recorded because it's an example for us as well to follow while we wait for him to come in judgment and to vindicate us, his people. If we recall the history of the Jews and the temple in particular, what we see happening in chapter 13, particularly in those first few verses, 
is the repetition of a pattern that was started back in the Old Testament. You see, in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, we learn that before the destruction of the first temple, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Do you see what's happening? The, the Jews have not been faithful to God. And God is going to send the Babylonians in judgment against the temple. Did you know that God can use nations to bring His judgment? And he says that's going to happen. And before the temple is toppled, the glory of God, which had made his presence known among the Israelite people in the temple, he takes off. The glory of God departs the temple and then the destruction comes. Well, look what happens here. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, he tabernacles the presence of God always and wherever he is. And he pours out his Holy Spirit that we could be his temple as well. The glory of God is once again leaving the temple. And he goes east to the mountain of the east. Guess what the mountain on the east is? It's the Mount of Olives, which is where they end up in verse 3. So here we have the glory of God, Jesus Christ himself, leaving the temple, and the disciples are still marveling at the temple. Christ, the cornerstone, is walking beside them, and they are marveling at the giant white stones of the temple. They're talking about bricks and mortar. As they walk with the glory of God made flesh. Who will be crucified three, three days later. And then six days later on the third day. Raised up to life everlasting. And then he will ascend to the right hand of his father. And just as he promised he'll pour out his Holy Spirit. So that not just Jesus would be the temple of God. But the church of God. As the gospel goes to all nations. Would be his temple as well. And they're still marveling at those bricks. And that mortar. And Jesus drops this hammer. Not one stone will be left upon another. In 70 AD, the Romans came to town. And it was a season of political upheaval. And just as Jesus prophesied, that temple came crashing down. But before that happened, atop the Mount of Olives... Jesus sits there with Peter and James and John and Andrew. Sitting on the top of the Mount of Olives looking across the Kidron Valley down at the temple. And the disciples say, tell us Jesus, when will these things happen? What's the sign that these things are to be fulfilled or executed or completed? Because Jesus is speaking on the mountain of, Mount of Olives, Bible scholars call this the Olivet Discourse, And the main idea of the passage that, that we're going to consider here is that we should be on guard so that we're not deceived or anxious as we await Christ's vindication. It had to be hard for the disciples, right? They're, they're saying the temple that you should be concerned about once Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to the right hand of the Father, all their friends were Jews who cared about the temple. And Jesus says, don't care about the temple because I'm the temple and they've got to live their lives and their religion like that. Meanwhile, the temple's still standing. They look like the crazy people. When are the disciples going to be vindicated? Oh, you said Jesus is the temple and this temple is meaningless, but it still stands. And I don't know about you, but in this world, I feel like the crazy one sometimes. I turn on 
CNN or Fox News or read Google News and see yet another Christian who's being made fun of for their faith. I saw a young lady at a college campus in California. They're doing some vote on transgender issues. And everybody voted in favor of it, basically making it another protected class at the college. And she's in the Student Government Association. And she didn't, she didn't vote no. She didn't vote yes. She just said, I'm going to abstain. That's all I'm going to do. And for the next week, she's been tarred and feathered in the press there in California. She's been made fun of for being a Christian. We're the weird people in a world that is hostile toward Jesus Christ. And the pattern that Jesus gives to his disciples for awaiting their vindication when the temple falls is the same pattern that can be instructive for us as well. As we wait for Christ to come in victory, there's two things we see in verses 1 through 13. First, we must not be misled by false messiahs or routine events. And secondly, we must be on guard so that persecution advances the gospel and proves our faith. First, we must not be misled. In verses 5 through 13, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about what they can expect between the time of his ascension and their vindication when the temple falls. And he commands his disciples, do you see it? To watch out or to beware or see to it that no one misleads them or causes them to be led astray. Verse 5. Why would Jesus say that? Because Jesus knows the future. He knows as soon as he ascends to the right hand of the Father that all sorts of pretenders and all sorts of imposters are going to come out of the woodworks and many deceivers will come, verse 6, and they will, they will mislead many. You say, I, I thought that was Jesus talking about the end times, talking about a, way, a long time after his resurrection. No, that we are in the end times. We are in the last days. Christ is risen from the dead. He's building his kingdom. And... and this happens almost immediately to the disciples. People pretending to represent Christ and even using the divine name. Verse 6 says, they will say, I am. According to the ever-reliable Wikipedia. <laughs> students, don't use that for your research papers. Okay? Just a heads up. But according to the ever-reliable Wikipedia, there were six people who claimed to be the Lord Jesus Christ returned from heaven in the 19th century. There were 26 in the 20th century and there's already five in the 21st century. But messianic imposters are nothing new. They're as old as the resurrection of Jesus. The disciples faced these uh, pretenders seemingly in greater numbers even than we do today. In fact, New Testament letters, entire New Testament letters are written because there are people pretending to be Jesus and sowing a false gospel. So, church, we've got to be aware of people who pretend to be for Christ or to use his name only to mislead the church. You say, well, I don't believe it was that bad back then. Prove it to me. Well, let's, let's go to the Bible. Paul in Acts 20, what does he say to pastors? Watch out! Because wolves will emerge from within and they'll come from without. 
What does he say in Galatians? I am amazed. I am amazed. It takes a lot to amaze Paul because he saw a lot. I am amazed. You are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. And you're deserting him for what? For a different gospel. Which is not really a gospel at all. Why? Because no other gospel other than the true gospel is good news. But there's some who are disturbing you. And they want to distort the gospel of Christ. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, even now, many antichrists have appeared. You see, church, deception in the name of Jesus is as old as the New Testament. So Jesus says what? See to it that you're not deceived. Cling to the gospel of Jesus. He is all your hope. It is in Him. It is by Him. It is from Him. It is for Him. Make sure, church, that deceivers and deception... Don't take hold of you and don't think that they are a sign to be read. Ooh, there's another David Koresh. There's a, another person pretending to be Jesus. It must mean that the coming of Jesus is right around the corner. No, this is normal stuff. For as long as Jesus has ascended and until he comes again, there's going to be deceivers. There's going to be deception. It's an ongoing symptom of the world's rebellion against Christ. And those who serve him. In time, however, Jesus our King is going to come back. And he will vindicate his church. And like the temple, he will judge everyone and everything who refuses his rule. Disciples should not be surprised that there are deceivers. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? Y'all awake? You shouldn't be surprised. And they also must not be afraid, verse 7, of wars and rumors of war. At the time of the disciples, wars and skirmishes and rumors of war were even greater in that region then than they are today. These things, Jesus says, must come to pass. And then he adds what in verse 7? Not the end. These aren't the end. They're normal everyday occurrences in a broken, messed up, fallen world that's rebellious against Jesus. We can't produce world peace. Only Jesus can. In verse 8, Jesus continues. Nation will rise up in battle against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be earthquakes and there's going to be famines. And these are not far off unusual events. They're normal, normal life in a broken world. They happen today. With great intensity, they happened a long time ago with great intensity. Acts chapter 11 verse 28 records a massive famine throughout the known inhabited earth. We know of at least, at least a dozen earthquakes that occurred in that region between Jesus' resurrection and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Including, by the way, one that completely toppled the city of Colossae. In fact, many Bible scholars think that it's likely that Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, but by the time the letter arrived, there were no Colossians there to read it. None of these things, Jesus says, gives us a reason to fear or to run or to flee or to speculate. Jesus tells his disciples these things, not so that they would sit around and make predictions about when Jesus is coming back. But rather, so that they would persevere and not be distracted by the routine events of a broken world. Here's what Jesus is saying. 
When you hear about all these things, settle down and keep being faithful to Jesus. This is routine, normal stuff. It tells you nothing about when I'm coming back. It's just the beginnings of birth pains, verse 8. Any of you ladies know what Braxton Hicks contractions are? I got, I got a nodding head over here like, I just had them. Thank you very much. Man, we're, we're dumb. We don't know. Braxton Hicks contractions are false contractions. The, my wife, at about seven months, her belly started to tighten. And just be random. We'd be, we'd be out on a walk. Summer of 2007 was the hottest summer on record at the time in Raleigh. And they said, you know, to do some walking. So we're out there. It's 112 degrees with the sun radiating off those nice asphalt streets. And we're walking. And all of a sudden, she's like, whoa. I'm like, what? And her stomach was so tight. It's so Braxton Hicks. We go to the doctor. Doc, hey, doc, am I about ready to give birth prematurely? Am I in trouble? Oh, those are Braxton Hicks contractions. Well, what do I need to do about it? Just keep living your life. You know what wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines are in the world? It's Braxton Hicks contractions. Just keep living your life. Go to work, walk, do what you do. Love Jesus, serve Jesus, honor Jesus, and don't be alarmed. Stop watching CNN and every time there's a skirmish break out in the Middle East, be like, this is it! Jesus could come back right now. He could come back a thousand years from now. We don't know. So stop worrying about it and start serving Jesus till he does come back. We don't need another David Koresh, another war, another showdown with North Korea, another earthquake, another natural disaster to know that Jesus is coming in victory to vindicate his people. Jehovah's Witnesses in the last two centuries have predicted the return of Christ nine times already. They were wrong every time. There was a guy, I can't remember his name, I think his last name was Wisnet or something like that, 1988. Some of you are old enough to remember it. 88 reasons why the rapture's in 1988. If anybody writes another book like that, just throw it away. It's a bunch of garbage. Jesus has already vindicated himself by destroying the temple and he will vindicate all of us when he comes again. And until that time, when there's wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These must, you see that word verse 7? They must take place in a world that has fallen and broken and antichrist. Jesus told his disciples everything beforehand, verse 23, not so they would speculate, but so they would persevere and not grow weary in the work of living for our risen king and extending his kingdom, which means that our task is the same. World events don't alarm us. We persevere even as creation groans and the nations rage, Psalm 2, against the Lord and his anointed. So, if we're not going to be deceived, we're not going to be alarmed by the presence of deceivers and wars and rumors of war. What else must we do? We must be prepared, church, for the fact that we serve a risen king who is building a different kingdom and the world doesn't like it. So Jesus tells his disciples and he says to us in verses 9 through 13, we must be on guard so that persecution advances the gospel and proves our faith. I want to say to you, church, that what I'm about ready to preach is not easy to preach, but we need to hear it because we've misunderstood what persecution is to the church and how it fuels the progress of the gospel. 
In one generation before the temple falls, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus is going to be preached to all the nations in the inhabited world, verse 10. How is this possible? How is it possible that 11 disciples, because one of them defected, right? How is it possible that 11 disciples who all speak the same language will suddenly get the gospel to multitudes in all the known inhabited world in a bunch of different languages like that in one generation? That is crazy. Two words, Pentecost and persecution. Pentecost and persecution. Well, you know what happened at Pentecost, right? The Spirit descended and He gives them the gift of tongues. And there's all these Jews there from all over the known inhabited world. Many of them speaking different languages. And they hear the gospel in their own language. And the Bible tells us they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing the apostles speak in his own language. So then they gather and they hear Peter preach his sermon. And 3,000 Jews are saved. Which means suddenly we went from 11 to 3,011 evangelists for the gospel. And then they stay bottled up in Jerusalem. But Jesus says it's going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So what happens? God allows persecution to come. You see, Pentecost prepares thousands of evangelists with a story of good news to tell. But it is persecution that spreads the gospel to synagogue officials and governors and kings. Stephen is stoned to death in chapter 7 and the gospel's on the run in chapter 8. Peter and John are arrested in Acts 4. In Acts 5, the apostles are thrown in public prison by the high priest and the Sadducees. Paul's journey to Rome is just a series of testimonies before Roman officials as he is imprisoned all the way to Rome. Paul tells us about what it's like to live for Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 and following. He faced many imprisonments. He was beaten many times without number. He was often in danger. Five times he received from the Jews the 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods and once he was stoned. Look at the beginning of verse 9. What does Jesus say? He does not say, look out for persecution, but take heed to yourselves. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying that the church has spent a lot of time, particularly in the United States, praying that persecution would not come. But Jesus says, persecution's coming. And what you should be praying about is yourself, that you would endure, that you would persevere, that you would not defect, that you would be faithful to the end, no matter what it costs you. Jesus doesn't say take heed for persecution. He says take heed to yourself. The danger to be avoided is not persecution, but failing to live out the faith that we proclaim in the face of persecution. Are, are y'all here? All right. Is this on? Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't default to self-preservation. But rely instead upon the power of God. What do we want to do when the world says you're crazy? When the world says you look different, act different, and so you're not welcome here? We want to say, well, I'll just put Jesus in my back pocket for a while and I'll act like he doesn't matter very much. And Jesus says in that moment is the moment you have the opportunity to live in the power of God. As you are faithful to Christ, confidently Telling of the resurrection message when faced with death, you will serve King Jesus as a powerful testimony. Do you see that in verse 9? As a testimony that he is ruling and risen and returning for those who surrender to him now. You know what that word testimony is in the Greek? It's the word martus. 
Do you hear the word martyr in that? Do you see what Jesus is saying to his disciples? The way you live your life will be validation of the message you proclaim. It's one thing to say that you believe that Jesus killed death and put it in the grave. But it's another thing to be willing to die for the message. Your death will validate the truth of the resurrection. You will give up your life for me. But in so doing, people will know that Jesus is risen and that Jesus saves. And that there's not even fear in death for these crazy people. Because they serve a king who has so arrested their hearts and changed them from the inside out. That nothing will stop them from serving their king. And look at what Jesus says in verse 11. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are going to say. Is that amazing to you, church? Like, I, I, I would have been like, Jesus, don't worry. Like, tell me not to worry about the pain because I'm not going to feel it. You're going to miraculously take the pain of the flogging away. Help me not to worry about the spikes that are going to be driven through my hands. Tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down on a cross because he wouldn't be crucified straight up because it would dishonor his Lord. God, help me not feel the pain of the persecution. And Jesus doesn't address the pain of the persecution. Because in that moment, we're going to be so filled with the Spirit and so in love with our Savior who gave his life for us. What we're really going to worry about is what we're going to say. And Jesus says, don't you worry about it. Because when the world comes after you, when the world attacks you, when they want to strip you down for your faith in Jesus, then the, the Spirit of God who transformed you and sealed you will give you the words to say in that very hour. Just speak. Just open your mouth when it's time to speak and watch what God will do. And in those days and in these days, it's amazing how God uses persecution the Muslim Brotherhood, I think in 2011, slaughtered a bunch of Christians. And then weeks later, you had to go look for it in the news because nobody would talk about it. But hundreds upon hundreds of Egyptians came to saving faith in Christ because of the way those who were persecuted died. They gave a verbal testimony to the reality of their risen king. And it shook people to their core. And God brought more people into his kingdom. And here's more good news, church. Persecution doesn't just spread the gospel to people who otherwise wouldn't hear it. It's also the platform for proving our faith. Living for Jesus between the time of his coming and the time of his vindication is not easy. Look at verse 12. Brothers will kill their Christian brothers. It's happening every day in the Middle East. Fathers will kill their Christian children. Children will kill their Christian parents. The only security that Jesus leaves with the disciples is that they are his and he is theirs and he's God. Their biological families will abandon them, but they have the family of God. Verse 13 tells us that the disciples would be hated, hated by all. Well, you say, does that mean all, like every single person? No, it means all kinds of people, right? Obviously, the rest of the church didn't hate them. They loved them. And 5,000 people that loved him in just a few weeks. But the disciples would be hated by all kinds of people in all kinds of places. Why? 
on account of Jesus' name. Not on account of their name. Not on account of their background or their language or all the other things that the world wants to tell you about. It's ultimately because of their allegiance to Jesus. You see, when you live for the sake of the name of Christ, you can expect to be hated, church. There's going to be times when all the sugar and the spice and everything nice that you would put on your views and try to sugarcoat it so people will take it, it's not going to matter and it's not going to deflect from the hatred of the world. And in those moments, although they are difficult, they are also sweet. You say, why are they sweet, Daniel? Here's why. Because untested faith is unproven faith. Untested faith is unproven faith. It's not until you've walked through the trial, the fire, the disappointment, the pain, the torment, that you know that when the trial comes, that you're still going to stand with Christ. You see, tested faith is beautiful. It's refined as though by fire. And tested faith that stands will rise again when Christ comes and calls us all up into His resurrection. People will abandon the disciples. Their families will shun them. They will kill them. They'll be beaten and delivered over to death. And yet the disciples will say, as Paul said, I am well pleased for the death of Christ to be working in me so that the life of God can be made known to you, that there is resurrection life in Christ. We will be hated by all church, but those who endure to the end will be saved. Who does the saving? God does. You can't save yourself. We'll be saved. It's passive voice. The one who keeps laboring and trusting and looking to the risen Savior to lead us in victory, that one will surely be saved in the day of the coming of Christ Jesus. So may we be the church who is full of people, though afflicted, though tormented, though sometimes distressed, Depressed, though sometimes downcast, that we will endure and find that on the day of His coming we will stand because those who are truly saved will truly persevere. Let us be those who are patiently walking with, in, and for Christ through the trials that come, finding that when He returns we will be resurrected, vindicated at the day of the coming of Christ Jesus. May God Himself give us grace upon grace to not be distracted by deceivers, natural disasters, and to endure even if we face persecution. Would you pray with me? Lord God, there's people in this room who have faced pain this week. It may have been a co-worker who made fun of them for their faith in Christ, for for praying over lunch. It may have been something small, something petty. God, there's, there's times that we watch the news and we get frustrated and disappointed and disappointed and wonder, God, uh, what's going on in the world? What's the world coming to? And yet we look back over history and we look to your word today and you remind us this stuff happens in a broken world, which is why we desperately need a risen king. God, there's some here this morning who don't know how to face the adversity that life brings because they don't yet know that they belong to you. There's some folks here this morning that aren't sure that they're going to be able to endure to the end because they aren't sure that they ever even got started with you. 
God, I pray that for that one, that you would give them the courage to step out this day and say, I need to start living for Jesus no matter what it costs me. And help them to know, God, we'll stand with them. And you'll stand with them no matter what trials and storms may come. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand together as we sing?